0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Melanation Healing Project podcast in collaboration with Toledo Moms for Social Justice. I am Erin Schoen-Marsh, your moderator for today. You're probably wondering, wait, where's Shelly? I want Shelly. Well, it is Shelly's birthday today, so we are giving her the day off. (laughs)
1: Because Erin, she may have some fans out there. We don't know.
0: <laughs> right. I mean, I'm a fan. <laughs> right. So I'm a little, like, thrown off about her
1: here, you know? Listen, I tried to get her to come in. I'm just like, please, just. <laughs> <laughs> like, we need yes. you. Know yes. <laughs> who's <stalkers>? going <laughs> to slow us down? I even threw you in it. I even threw you because I'm like, Erin's going to be so sad. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: true. I am. <laughs> So Erin, could you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. Of course. Um, So first, I just want to say thank you for having me. This is um, just such an honor. um, And I'm just really excited for this conversation. I, so I am a midwife, uh, I'm a certified nurse midwife, which is an advanced practice nursing degree. Um, so similar to a nurse practitioner, which I think more and more people are becoming um, aware of. Um, I also am about two thirds of the way through a master's of public health in maternal and child health. Yeah. So I have always been, um, a diligent admirer and learner of cultures, um, even as uh, a little kid, I was really kind of fascinated by um, different cultures and, and really kind of what we would think of today as like the study of anthropology. But of course, I didn't know that as a little kid, but I always loved mm-hmm. to learn about other cultures in other parts of the world. And I think that as I grew up and became older, that kind of awareness that, you know, the way things are are not here are not the way that they are everywhere, um, kind of developed into a recognition that w- the way things are done here are not necessarily the right way. Um, so I think kind of through an evolution, I was able to kind of recognize um, different um, systems of oppression um, that exist here and in other places in the world. Mm. I've been having a lot of conversations lately about what we call social positioning and kind of the lenses that we look at life through. So in my um, master's of public health program, when we introduce ourselves at the beginning of a class, we take, you know, much longer than a normal introduction. And we, we describe the lenses that we look at the world through and how that's relevant to what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And it's really been a really great exercise in empathy. It, it really helps you realize that everybody has different experiences and truths and realities and lenses that they're bringing to every experience. So in my experience, I, I grew up, you know, I have a very normal kind of white privileged experience. I you know I we were not rich but we were not poor. Both of my parents worked. They were married. Um you know decent education. But I think because of that I when I was growing up I witnessed a lot of racism and a lot of misogyny and a lot of homophobia and certainly transphobia. So as an adult I think I've been able to kind of connect that to my love of different cultures and kind of recognize how those two play together um, and interact.
0: Wow, all right, cool. And one of the things I forgot to mention is that um, Erin also recently is in the process of establishing Sala's Health and Wellness, which will be a nonprofit dedicated to erasing racial disparities in maternal and infant health in Toledo and the surrounding areas. Oh, that's awesome. So we're going to talk about that too. I know, I know. So what are some of the most prevalent health disparities that exist today, in your opinion, and how much of it do you believe is racially or ethnically charged?
2: Um, I guess, speaking of lenses, <laughs>
0: I, always, I always come
2: at this conversation initially from the reproductive health standpoint, because that's kind of where I live my life. But mm-hmm. I was uh, part of a wonderful women, uh, gender equity summit this past week and um, moderated the women in health uh, panel discussion and was graciously reminded by this amazing um, neurologist in Toledo, who is a black woman, that uh, healthcare disparities exist in all areas of medicine. Mm -hmm. But I think that our mind always goes to kind of the maternal and infant um, uh, health disparities, which, uh, of course, I mean, is, is huge, and they definitely should. But in healthcare in general, I mean, we if we look at um, the risk of uh, and outcomes of things like heart disease, stroke, um, cancer, um, and it's not just that Black and Indigenous women have higher rates of these uh, uh, healthcare issues. Due to things like, you know, weathering and toxic stress, historical and generational traumas, which I know we, you know, talk about on this podcast a lot. But it's also that those treatments are going to vary greatly um, based on a person's Mm -hmm. access to that healthcare, the color of their skin. Um, And, you know, we we also know that they're going to maybe be offered different treatments, um, maybe effective treatments. Um, Yeah. Mm. So. um, so it so it exists in in all of those in all of those levels um i'm going to be frank and say that i believe that it's all racially charged um at least in, on a systemic <laughs> level um and in many many cases on an individual level and i think that we're probably going to get into the meat of that
0: yes did you have more to add there i'm okay. good <laughs> All right, Tay, do you, would you like to? You add know, anything? I do
1: appreciate everything that she said, and and I concur with everything that she said. And you're absolutely right. We are going to get um a little deeper into that. I know from my own um personal experience, a lot of our healthcare and our healthcare system is quite racially charged, and um. Uh, not only racially charged, but also on a socioeconomic um, uh, from a socioeconomic standpoint, if you just lack the resources and lack the Mm money, um, you you just don't get the same quality of care. And unfortunately, here in America, minorities, specifically African-Americans and uh, uh, other black and brown um, folk, they get the brunt of that. They feel um, the disparity a whole lot more because when it comes to finances and financial wealth, We lack in that percentage. So Mm -hmm. you will Mm -hmm. see that very often. And then not only that, a lot of it is also because of the education that's been received over the over decades um, of of uh, the medical personnel, doctors and nurses being taught how to treat black and brown people, specifically African-American uh, peoples, I know for sure in, uh, uh, medical history books, we were, they were taught to treat us as if we were some sort of superhuman being and that our pain, uh, we were able to tolerate more pain. So therefore we were Mm -hmm. less likely to be believed when we say we're hurting or we're in pain, therefore more likely to be dismissed by our doctors when we say that we need help. And when we say that we are hurting and, and I've seen this, um, throughout my life and I've actually experienced it as well. So you're right on the money. Yeah, that's 100% mm-hmm. correct. And actually, I, I
2: have that uh, in my notes to speak about. But, uh, just to kind of piggyback off of what Tay was saying, there there was an actual research study. So this is documented in our research. that It came out um, of the University of Virginia in 2016, and it found that slightly less than half of the medical students surveyed believed that Black people felt less pain than white people, had less sensitive nerve endings, had thicker skin, Uh, had better fertility, and smaller brains. uh, And there were other, yeah, there were other very equally shocking things that were on this survey. Um, And that was medical students. Yes. Yep. So
0: to piggyback off of that, I have a doctor friend who said that when she was in residency, she was told that, you know, oh, black people have Mm -hmm. a higher pain tolerance. So Mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. So wow. this is a really broad question, but what do racial and ethnic health disparities look like in wellness and health? Like how do those manifest in the real world? What can people be on the lookout for, for other people or for themselves? Yeah.
2: So I, I was, I kind of wanted to approach this um, conversation or this question, uh it starting by differentiating health and wellness. So those are you know, when we look at the them um, kind of like technically at the definitions, those are two separate things. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and, and both exist and are inextricably linked with like a larger industry. Um, and in both cases, uh, you know, both of those industries uh, have significant disparities, um, in access. Um, but when we look at health, you know, health is is what we call the absence of disease, um, and so in healthcare, like I always talk about, you know, the disparities of my personal interest, um, and the um, of particularly women and infants, those um, those disparities, as we know in the United States right now, look at or look like um, an unequal. Uh, Unequal access, but unequal outcomes. So, um, of course, many people know in the United States right now we lose 17.4 per 100,000 mothers per year to pregnancy and childbirth-related situations, um, and those and the and the uh, black women and uh, indigenous women are up to four times more likely to die than white women, um, and that is regardless of income and education. So what that tells us is that that is not an access issue. Um, most women in the United States right now can access uh, prenatal care. Um, there are some pretty small groups of, of women who cannot, and that includes um, uh, like kind of undocumented and refugee uh, status seeking women. Um, and then there's a very small percentage of non-insured women. Um, but again, like I said, most women can access um, uh, um, maternity care in the United States right now. So that tells us that those, that those health disparities are, are race-based. Um, in the wellness industry, um, this is, this is kind of getting into, I mean, this could be a whole other podcast, but um, the wellness <laughs> industry, you know, if I were just going to kind of lay it all out there, it's really kind of been, kind of co-opted by and directed to, uh, you know, white, mm-hmm. wealthy women mm-hmm. in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, mm-hmm. so that does get into kind of an access conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you think about the wellness industry and, and what it actually is, obviously it's a, it's a vast industry, but, um, you know, we have, you know, the things we think of, um, like yoga and Pilates and um, mindfulness and um, supplements and natural health foods and you know, health food stores. And, you know, if we think about even just kind of looking at Toledo, kind of where all of those things are located. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge group of people who are unable to access those wellness things. And there's also kind of a, a question, I think, to me is like, why, why this wellness industry is so huge and why it even persists. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, that, could, that we can kind of trace that back to the patriarchy. <laughs> but, um you know, it's, like I said, it's accessible, you know, only to a small percentage of people, but those are the, the people who have um, money. And, you know, there are also Healthcare providers that exist within that space, like your naturopaths um, and other alternative healthcare providers. But in our country, mm-hmm. our insurance industry has made it really difficult for those people to carry insurance. Um, so, a lot of time, what mm-hmm. they end up doing is charging a flat rate um, or a sliding scale. And, you know, with respect to the fact that, like, everybody does deserve to get paid you know, per the, you know, commensurate to the labor that they're putting in. Mm-hmm. That's not, mm-hmm. it's also not cost effective to a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Chiming in with that. I mean, I'm a solidly middle-class white person and I can't afford the, you know, the price tag to go see mm-hmm. a naturopath. So imagine that everyone in my situation and, and more can't have that access. And then speaking from a yoga teacher's perspective, what Erin said is exactly spot on. I mean, it is, especially the yoga world, very white woman dominated, affluent. Um, The yoga studio that I teach at is really trying hard to break that. Um, They offer scholarships for um, certain categories of people and they put another um, studio downtown to have access to people who lived near and around that area but it, you know, it's slow going and it still boils down to price, you know, how many people can afford mm-hmm. about a $100 yeah. a month for yoga, yeah. and not a whole lot. So one of the things I'm trying to do in my own life is um take, you know, because I am a yoga teacher with nine years of experience. Now I'm, I'm looking to volunteer in the community by teaching yoga for people who might not have ever done it mm-hmm. or been able to afford yeah. it
1: otherwise. I think that's, one of the main ways it's going to reach to people because we can offer Um, scholarships, you know, to help people get access and things like that. But it really won't mean anything if the community isn't educated. And I mean, and I'm talking about the community that's actually providing Mm. the services, the people who are uh, opening up the stores and and opening up the businesses. Mm -hmm. I know when I used to work at a local hospital, I worked for um, a grant program and I worked with women who were um, in prenatal and we seen a lot of health disparities. And one of the things I had to do was go to the medical community and educate the medical community on how to engage the people they serve within that community because there was a lot of tone deafness and there was a lot of disconnect Mm and you would hear stuff like well why aren't they engaging why aren't they utilizing the scholarships it's there but it it goes deeper than that it goes so much deeper than that like we need to teach the people who are serving the community how to connect with the community and sometimes why is it so hard for people to get access to things like scholarships that may be available, but, but aren't being utilized.
0: Mm -hmm. That's a great point. And I know education is not the same as healthcare, but when I was going through my master's program through education, I remember them teaching like, well, you know, black students and white students learn differently, interact differently, and were giving us breakdowns. And at that point, you know, I was this colorblind twenty-three year old, and I was sort of like, isn't it racist to say that like black students and white students learn differently? <laughs> but then as they wa- as they walked me through these things, it was like uh, social cultural tips, and it was just really eye opening that no, you can't interact with some everyone exactly the same. Like people learn differently and people interact differently. And if you know Mm -hmm. those differences, you'll be a better teacher.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. All right, so tell Erin, tell us about a time you witnessed or experienced the healthcare system working against someone because of their race or ethnicity or religious background. Um,
2: Gosh, so I've been thinking about, (laughs) I've been thinking a lot about this and um, kind of all the the, the specific examples that I could give you. And I know that it's kind of later on in the conversation, we um, have, we're going to, you know, address kind of social determinants of health. So I think that these kind of all kind of connect as far as how the system works against people. Um, I mean, we've all heard of these stories of, um, you know, what happens when you're late to an appointment or what happens when, you know, you can't get uh, your... Transportation to get to your appointment, and then you're either late or you miss it, and then you call, um, or you show up, and uh, your appointment's gone. And because Mm -hmm. it, you know, the healthcare providers have to stay on a schedule, and they have to have a certain amount of productivity in order to prove to the company that they deserve to work there and that they're a productive provider. And so then that person's lost to their their appointment, that person that shows up late or doesn't show up at all, and then their care is delayed and um, or they don't go back because they, you know, don't have an opportunity to get back or their, you know, their car that wasn't reliable is now, you know, completely broken or whatever, Um, you know, so there's just thousands of examples I could think of about how um, the healthcare system works against um, people but but another thing that i I had thought of um, that I have personally witnessed um on many many, many occasions is um and this is obviously more of a micro level than than the system, but um coercion coercion is something that happens to um, uh, black and indigenous and people of color probably um, I mean definitely much more than um than their uh, white counterparts and um, you know I could get in I could talk for hours you know about why that is and and how that happens but it's like um, Tay was saying earlier about um, you know people of color and black people just not being listened to and it kind Mm -hmm. of ties into that where it's not only not being listened to but it's that kind of assumption that that those folks are not Smart enough or educated mm-hmm. enough to question. Um, I I witnessed a really great conversation on Facebook the other day about consent um, for uh, for pap and pelvic exams. Um, and uh, one of uh, a, a, actually a colleague of mine had had used the phrase assumed consent. Um, which is, I think so it's a huge thing and it's something that happens all the time, but where healthcare providers assume that because you're there for treatment, that, that you consent to everything that, that they want to do or want to do. Wow. To so, um, you know, just kind of as an example to, to kind of break down that coercion thing, and this kind of ties into historical and generational traumas. Yeah. um, but there is a, a very well-known, uh, well, maybe not as well-known. It's well-known to me, but um, a statistic or story that that young Black women are um, kind of encouraged at a higher rate to have uh, IUDs than, than white women of the same mm-hmm. age. Um, and this kind of all plays into, you know, you know fertility and um, kind of the historical injustices mm-hmm. of um, sterilization but th- but this is something that I have witnessed with my own eyes, um, and I have seen young women convinced um, to have these IUDs placed, even when you know you can kind of tell that they're not understanding, they're kind of questioning um, but but then it's like you know the question is you know why <laughs> and 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 there's just kind of lacking that conversation around it of. Um, Here are your other options. And here is why Mm -hmm. I think this would be most successful to you, for you. But what, what are your questions about it? Does that make sense? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Tay, would you like Um, to add anything?
1: Actually, this hits home for me. It's not just uh, statistics. And a couple of things that you pointed out, um, minority women um, being encouraged to take birth control at a higher rate than white women. I've, I've read a lot of those studies too. So you're absolutely correct on that you know um back to when you were saying not being listened to that I think that's one of the hugest things that creates part of the barrier between uh, medical and black and brown communities we -hmm. don't feel heard we don't feel uh like we're valued you know um I remember feeling like I had postpartum depression with my second child and I kept going to my doctor telling her I didn't feel right. I was sad all the time, crying. And I just, and I, I I felt like I needed help. And I was trying to be proactive before, you know, any, you know, anything else. And she brushed me off and I had to ask her if she could please give me a PHQ-9, which for those of you who don't know is a depression, is a depression, self-administered depression scale for women who are postpartum. And she... She just was very reluctant to give me anything. I went to her several times and, and she never addressed my need. And so I I had to suffer in silence. But, uh, when I was working with women, um, at a local hospital doing the same work, I knew it was happening there as well. So Mm -hmm. I just didn't know what to do about it at the time. And I didn't know where it all came from and why, why were we being dismissed when we, you know, when we were talking about how we felt and things like that, um, but just bringing it back home to what you were saying, it's just having those, ha- having that dialogue and teaching the medical community how to uh, care. And and sometimes, you know, even though we see the healthcare community as you know the most educated, sometimes they need to be educated as well they need to be educated about who they are serving and i can't emphasize that enough just lack of lack of understanding why uh black and brown people are afraid of, of the healthcare system distrust mm-hmm. the healthcare system why why they would rather sit in silence and struggle um because the lack of trust is yep. the lack of trust. I mean, mm-hmm. when you uh, think about the Tuskegee experiment, what they did to our African American men. And Tay, why don't you explain that for people who might not know what you're talking um, about? Well, Just the, briefly, the Tuskegee experiment was an experiment that um, African American men were injected with syphilis. Um, you know, when you go into this community, you have to understand the the, the every angle and every aspect of healthcare. And 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 it, and mm-hmm. if you want to get your community that you're serving to be compliant, you have to understand what their fears are, what their hesitancies are, what, what is what is what is riding against them within the system that you probably can be a part of. Tay, you are just yeah. so beautifully advocating Aww, for things. Yeah. I love listening to you talk. Uh, on that <laughs> note,
0: Heather, do you have anything you'd like to add? I, I actually don't on that one. Tay just really um, <laughs> she covered all the, the bases. All right, so Aaron, just for your notes, we're gonna skip a couple of questions, but feel free to add, yeah, just because of time we're getting. But anything you want to say that because I know I'm sure there were points you wanted to make, so just chime in with your response to this. So, your upcoming nonprofit addresses many of these concerns. Could you share with us why you decided um, to start Solace Health and Wellness and why you felt it needed to exist here in Sweden? Yeah,
2: so. Um, I, so I guess I always start with a story when I, when I'm telling people about, about solace and with that, you know, working as a midwife in a large hospital system, of course, I very much love, um, serving women and, you know, people are always like, oh, you're so lucky you get to hang out with babies all the time. I'm like, yeah, babies are a great bonus, but for me, it's, it's caring for women. Um, and, and that's Mm. really where my passion is. And so I. I would be, I would be with these women for 15 minutes for a prenatal appointment. And obviously not all the time, but many times what ends up happening is at the end of a visit when, you know, there's been uh, some trust and rapport established between myself and a patient, you know, there were so many times where somebody would say something like, I'm, "I don't have enough food to feed myself and my my babies for the next month," or, um, you know, "I my partner has been more violent and I'm I'm scared, you know, to go home," or, you know, just something of that that manner. And I have like two minutes left to do something about that. <laughs> in, in this, um, in this setup. So I would like frantically run out to the nurse's station and try to quickly kind of come up with a plan of care, um, for this person. And there were seven midwives in the practice when I was there. And so, you know, also I, I, I wasn't ever really sure that I would see that, that patient again for uh, no, a couple, couple of months. Um, and so it was just so frustrating because I knew that there was a better way to do things. So this nonprofit is kind of like my own small little, um, solution to these, um, situations. So it's designed to be a wraparound healthcare center. Um, but in my heart, it's really just kind of like a community center where, you know, people can come and feel safe and heard and respected. Um, but I, I want to make sure that we're offering um, therapy or mental health care. Um, I want to make sure that we're offering um, non-judgmental social service navigation. I mean, I would just love to be the kind of place where, you know, somebody says something to me, um, you know, maybe they're housing unstable. um, And I could say, you know what, I have a friend over at, LMH let me give them a call and we'll get you on the list like right now or even like oh, or yeah. even like bring in your you know 50 page you know whatever application and we will fill it out together because you know I I'm constantly this is such a depressing thing to think of and I think actually Rhonda I was listening to this past week's podcast earlier today and I think she hit it on it a little bit also but I'm constantly reminded in these conversations that the system is not broken. It is working exactly the way that it is meant mm. to work. Um, mm. And when people bring in a 50 page, you know, application for whatever service that they, they really need, um, or they're sent a link for it and they don't have Wi-Fi, or they don't have a computer or they don't have um they're topped out at a sixth grade education for you know a myriad of reasons. Um, then they can't fill out that application, and then they stay exactly where they they were. They're 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 never going to get any further. So, like I said, it's depressing, but I you know I really believe that it is like that for a reason. So when it comes to social service navigation, I I will do the application for you.
1: That's so good.
2: I will. You know, to me, it's not about like, you know, I'll do it. I'll, we'll do it together once. And then you can do it yourself from now on. It's, it doesn't even like, in my mind, it's not even like that. It's like, come back when you have another application and we'll do that one together too. (laughs) But um, anyway, and then of course, you know, I have to come at, the organization from a public health standpoint. So uh, there's going to be a huge component of health education and promotion, Mm -hmm. that wellness piece that we talked about and, um, you know, support circles. And like, I just, I really want people to know, you know, that there's this one place that they can come and obtain almost all, if not all of the services that they need. um, And as much help as I can possibly give them to, make things a little bit easier for them when they go home.
0: Mm -hmm. I love that. Um, so is there anything that our listeners can do to make health and wellness more equitable for black and brown people health and or wellness I should say so I mean we have probably listeners that are doctors nurses moms writers whatever so what can all these people do to try to <laughs> yeah. help? like we see the problems yeah now what do we do I
2: know that I have a lot of friends who um, are interested in making a difference um, in these kind of healthcare care situations um, but feel really kind of helpless of about how to do that because obviously it's hard to do if you are not in healthcare. Um, so I think that for non-healthcare people, a great way to get involved is legislation. Um, there's currently a ton of legislation moving through, um, our federal government, um, to address these maternal mortality, maternal morbidity and mortality, um, uh, statistics and our out of control maternal mortality rate. Um, there's a, a number of them, I think probably upwards of 10. Um, so, you know, a very simple thing that people can do is, you know, participate in, you know, emailing your representatives, calling your representatives um, And I guess I should say that's a a lot easier said than done, but often there are, you know, kind of online like form letters where you can just kind of attach your name to those. Um, So, so to keep an eye out on things like that and really kind of advocate for the medical community, and this is, (laughs) I'm going to try and keep this little soapbox like really short. Um, But (laughs) for the medical community and, and Tay was kind of, you know, I was talking about it earlier, where we need to learn how to be more like cult- we call it culturally cultural humility. But mm. it's to me like this is a this is a really big problem with a like a difficult solution because really what it's going to take is it's like you can't train racism and homophobia and misogyny out of people i mean if you look at if you look at the people who are more likely to go to medical school who are more likely to go to nursing school those are people who have had the privilege to get to where they are in the first place and are going to have the privilege to go further so it's a it's a specific demographic of people not always obviously um but it's a specific demographic of people and the question is is how do you train these things out of these people it cannot start when they get to medical school, it has to start way. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has to be a cultural shift. And so for my money, it starts with our children that, you know, we're raising today. Another thing about this is the DEI piece. And when large companies are doing DEI initiatives in a really performative way, I think that it continues to endanger and create unsafe spaces for those people that they bring to those spaces. Um, Because often Mm -hmm. the people that they, that these, you know, black and Brown folks are all of a sudden surrounded by are not trained to work with them. And are, and those folks are also often brought in to clean up messes that they didn't make and are almost destined to fail. Um, So, there's a term for that. I forget there... what it's
0: called, like glass tower or diving board, or I, I forget what
2: oh, I read yeah. about this. this is a yeah. But yeah. so I think that we also need to like, look at those like boardrooms, like those executive boardrooms, because healthcare is not just healthcare providers. It's Absolutely. also the executives and the administrators. And so we, we say we want to give all these people a place at the table, which is great. I completely agree with but we have to make that table a safe space. So for people in the healthcare industry who are really interested in kind of dismantling this systemic issue, I mean, we got to advocate for people to get to those spaces and we've got to make it available to them. And then we have to make it safe for them. And we have to listen. I mean, there's just such a, there's so much ego in medicine i'm i'm sure that comes as a shock to you all um but it like we really need to just like there needs to be those people that are just kind of breaking down those egos and and just standing up and advocating um which is you know it's difficult um but that's why we start these conversations
0: mm. And because all of these conversations can be quite heavy, we like to try to end on a light note and talk about something fun. So, your weird question for today is what is your current favorite song to belt out in the car when you don't have any kids in there and you just want to, you know, sing really loud?
2: Oh my gosh. (laughs)
0: or are you not so i I
2: mean i am absolutely a singer uh in the car out of the car (laughs) anywhere but you know it's funny i i'm a podcast nerd i listen to podcasts and it's so funny the other day my my um one child was telling me that they're uh, teacher was talking about how they go for a run in the morning and listen to podcasts. And everybody in the class said, well, if you listen to podcasts, that means you're a mom. <laughs> I'm like, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Which, yeah, made me laugh because like everybody I know listens to podcasts. <laughs> so, uh- <laughs> so I will say that my favorite podcast is of Aww, course the Melanation see? Healing Project. Um, but Aww. I also, um, Heather knows this, but I'm a big fan of uh, Armchair Expert with Dax Shepherd and oh, also yeah. um Jamila Jamil has a podcast I can't remember oh it's the iway the iway podcast which is an a, like a great initiative if you've ever um if you've ever heard of it but she is one of those people who will say absolutely everything that she is thinking and needs to be said and um has on some really uh, amazing guests
1: no not a song but a podcast mm. Um, no that, you know, that
2: works uh, uh, hey, what about you
1: <laughs> i would have to say right now lecrae i listen to him almost every day me and my kids on our way to school but I, I don't have a particular song though i just say put mm. it all on
0: repeat all album. them <laughs> you sing along to all of them <laughs> that's a good one yes. All right. Well, that wraps up our episode. Next week, we are going to be discussing how the judicial system and policing hurt and influence racial justice, and we are going to be talking with Rashia Ghee, who uh, so excited, yes, absolutely amazing. Don't miss it. You want to be there.